This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. Yes, I will be supporting the tax cuts, Fran. Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And PK, as we record this on Thursday morning, well, it's all over bar the shouting. The government is going to get its tax package, all of it, all three stages, through the Senate because the three crossbenchers that they've been negotiating with have all announced they'll back it. Yeah, that's right. So it's a significant achievement, really, for the government. It is their signature policy they took to the election. So it's not insignificant that they've been able to achieve this, as we say, recording this on a Thursday morning. There'll be a lot of shenanigans, but ultimately they have the numbers. It's quite significant also for Matthias Cormann, who has essentially, you know, saved the day. He's been the chief negotiator on this. He's been the one who's got Central Alliance and Jackie Lambie over the line by clearly promising, as we will talk about later, some things in relation to their demands. Yeah, no doubt about it. As you said, the government's signature policy, some would say it's only policy really during the election campaign. And we're up to day four of this parliament when we're recording this and it's going to get it through. So that is a a big kickstart to the Morrison government. PK, a lot of talk about freedom this week, the freedom agenda, freedom of the press, religious freedoms, uh, really both topics du jour in the federal parliament right now. Let's start with the Religious freedoms. The Prime Minister has pledged a bipartisan approach to a religious discrimination bill, which we're expecting actually very soon. He's kicked off a consultation process starting with his own backbench. What do you think he's going to hear from them, PK? Well, he's going to hear really mixed uh, views, Fran. There are some people from the conservative right of the party who will push for a very broad description of what this means. And there are others, the libertarians in the party, uh, you know, key figures, people like Tim Wilson and others who will argue for a religious discrimination act, you know, like the Sex Discrimination Act, but that it limits it basically in that context, just an act that talks Mm. about discrimination that people face on the basis of religion. The Attorney-General who's in charge of this, that's what he said he's going to deliver, isn't it? He said last month that it's going to be, you know, a basic bill to prevent discrimination. He said, follow the basic architecture of discrimination bills. So no more, no less, really. So if they go the basic route, um, I think they're likely very much to get Labor's support. And I think we've already got an indication now that Labor wants to go down that road. There's a few reasons for this. Firstly, to be fair to Labor, they never said they weren't going to support this. When this was first put on the table, they didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about it before the election, but they certainly never said they'd oppose this, right? They Never have they said they'd oppose this. We know now because actually Christina Keneally told you in an interview, Fran, that Labor will essentially lock in behind Scott Morrison's push for a new religious discrimination act. But it's about the parameters, I think, that Mm. really this could get very murky. And I've spoken to many people in the coalition as well who say that they're worried it could get quite murky. But I think the Prime Minister is signalling that he doesn't want to go down that road. I'll tell you where one of the sticking points will be. The whole debate around Israel Folau, who, of course, lost his job with Rugby Australia. Let's not go through all the details. I think people know it really well, this story now. There's all this debate that it's just contract law, that it's about, you know, employment law. Well, 
The Prime Minister was asked whether the laws should shield someone like Israel Folau from being sacked for the remarks he made on social media. And Scott Morrison said he was reluctant to comment on the Folau case because, of course, it's going to be before the courts. But he did say generally employers needed to have reasonable expectations of their employees. So this is where all of the contest will be in terms of law reform and how to construct this bill. How does it interact with employment law and contract law, for instance, because some in the coalition are arguing and telling me privately, hang on a minute, we're, we're, the, we're the party that believes in the rights of business. We do believe that business should have a right to you know, provide restrictions on employees. But, but there but is surely... genuinely a contest around where that line should be now. Yes, but that's always this case with discrimination law, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, discrimination law, equal rights, discrimination, sex discrimination, it's getting tested all the time in the courts. And that's the problem with once you have a law, then you have a boundary and then it has to be tested. Um, But it is interesting too that when the government put this notice of this uh, religious discrimination bill on the books of the parliament to be discussed this year, and there's no shorter time frame on it than than this year, it also had amendments to the Human Rights Act legislation legislation and also to the Marriage Act. And that's raised a few alarm bells. What does that mean? Is that going to take us back to that debate we were having during the same-sex marriage bill, that this whole religious discrimination thing was brought in to sort of shuffle off to the side? Things like, you know, can churches, for instance, refuse to rent their halls out for a gay marriage? Or can a a baker refuse to cook a cake for a same-sex wedding? Is that the sort of thing that this religious discrimination bill is going to be looking at? So there seems to be the circles wide around this. Labor says, yes, it'll support that basic bill you were just talking about. It says it remains absolutely steadfast on its insistence that, you know, schools cannot discriminate against LGBTQ students, for instance, but it's not so certain in terms of its position on the school's rights to employ or not employ a gay teacher, for instance. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of room for agitation here. The Prime Minister's saying he wants it to be a courteous debate. He wants bipartisanship on this. But boy, there are a lot of directions this can go in. So multifaceted, so many layers, so many, well, potential for division. And I don't see it as a left-right Labor-Liberal thing too. I think that you'll find fault lines on both sides of politics because I know many Labor people who think, of course, religious schools like a Catholic school should have the right, for instance, to sack a teacher that, you know, says on social media, hey, I love the Mardi Gras, let's go this weekend. I don't know, I'm making it Mm. up. But, you know, because it's not within the... The ethos of the school or it's not the way that they want their school to, to be run or the teachers to, to, you know, essentially teach or... But then doesn't that take us to the Israel Folau situation? Well, then it takes law? us essentially to the issue, which some people will be arguing on both sides about basically a double standard. Mm. Now, some people will argue, and they have been arguing this, that, um, you, you know, it's not comparing apples with apples, that a religious institution like a Catholic church's school mm. has a particular ethos because it is a religious school. And Rugby Australia is not a religious anything. It is a secular sporting organisation and that that's different. Well, people in, you know, the secular community or who believe that there shouldn't be double standards will say, well, why are they different? Why should they be different? And that's where, you know, I'm not making a judgment. I'm saying that's where the debate will lie. Yes. Because that's a pretty murky area and there are many different views on this. So 
I reckon it is interesting and instructive, though, that the Prime Minister has at least said he wants to take the middle ground here because that's really what he's saying here. He says he wants to work carefully, he wants bipartisanship, doesn't want it to be used as a political football. Yes, he doesn't want it to be an issue that divides people, though I do think it's worth remembering that Scott Morrison was one of those who back in 2017 moved amendments or supported amendments to the original bill. And one of those were the amendments to ensure that no organisation can have their public funding or charitable status threatened as a result of holding views that are consistent with the traditional definition of marriage between a man and a woman. So these kinds of positions and deeply held, you know, seem so sensible and basic and obvious to some, but to others, these will be points of contention too. So look out. Now, uh, look, I'm desperate to sing George Michael's freedom because we're getting into another freedom topic now. (laughs) That's enough. I think that is just enough. The other freedom conversation, of course, is press freedom, and it's a huge one. The government is under pressure to act following News Corp and the ABC police raids during two separate investigations into government leaks. At the beginning of this week, Cabinet resolved to have Parliament's Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security examine this issue. But is that going to satisfy those calling for immediate changes? I think we already have an answer there, don't we, Fran? I don't think, I don't think the media bosses are particularly happy. Well, no, the media bosses have made it clear. They said in that press club addressed uh, a week or so ago and on our radio shows that, that we don't need an inquiry. That's just going to slow things down. We need immediate review and changes to some of the national security laws that have been brought in since 9-11, particularly the laws around metadata, for instance, and the laws that uh, criminalise journalists if they print or publish in any way some national security material, some classified material. They want those laws changed now. They don't want them to get bogged down in an inquiry. But both Labor and the government have ignored that and both of them have come up with their own ideas for an inquiry. The government is um, siphoning it off to the very powerful joint committee in intelligence and security. Labor wants a different committee. It wants to constitute a committee that is cross-party, cross-houses, and also has members of the cross-bench in it. So it would be a significant number of people on that committee Mm. and has a broader remit outside national security, which is really what the government's committee is all about. Now, I know you spoke to Christina Keneally about these proposals earlier in the week and asked her whether a second inquiry proposal was counterproductive. As the media organisations themselves have pointed out, the issues, while they do, many of them do reside in national security legislation, quite a number of them sit outside of that. Dueling committees, committees at 20 paces really, um, but there will be a committee. It looks like there'll be two committees, I think, and uh, this process will go on. But at least they are looking at the laws and that is a very good place to start. All right, let's just briefly talk about leadership. Scott Morrison, I think, is trying to present himself as a very particular kind of leader, humble, bipartisan. In fact, we've already just um, talked a little bit about that in relation to religious freedoms and the way he's navigating that very, very uh, combative issue usually. Here he is talking about his meeting with the opposition leader earlier this week. The first step is to consult with our colleagues, our parliamentary colleagues. Um, And then I'm very keen to engage the opposition in that process as well. I'm catching up with the uh, the Leader of the Opposition this week and we'll talk about a range of different issues where I would hope that we'd be able to come together on. For me, this is an indication that he's, he's, you know, he's a student of history. He's looked at the last couple of years. He's a guy that wants to learn from the mistakes of the past 
And it seems to me that he doesn't, you know, it's like the antithesis of the of the Tony Abbott model. He he doesn't want to be a prime minister that looks like an opposition leader. He wants to be a prime minister that looks very statesmanlike and he's prepared to work across the aisle on a range of issues because he knows that that's the kind of prime minister that lasts. Well, that's true. I think he also knows that's the kind of Prime Minister that is a smaller target in a way because he's a very pragmatic person, I think. As you say, he wants to be a Prime Minister that lasts and the path to that is to look reasonable, be reasonable, and that often then doesn't give the opposition much room to move. So I think he'll pick a couple of key areas and try and get resolution of them. Tax he's already done. Another one will be energy policy. I reckon we'll try and see Scott Morrison work something out here before the next election and religious discrimination, religious freedoms, if he can get those very contentious issues closed down, I think he'll think he's got a good shot at the next three years because where's Labor got to go in a way? So it does put Labor in a bit of a pickle, I think, and we're going to talk about that with our next guest. (laughs) And our guest is the National Affairs columnist for the Australian Financial Review, Jennifer Hewitt. Jen's been watching the economic and political machinations over the last few days very, very closely. Jennifer Hewitt, welcome back to The Party Room. Great to be here. Jennifer, exciting to have you in The Party Room. The Coalition's $158 billion huge tax package it took to the election is poised to pass the Senate. They've got the numbers. We're recording this on a Thursday morning, but they've essentially done the deal with Central Alliance and with Jackie Lambie. It's a very significant moment for them. What do you make of it? Well, I think it is a very significant moment for them. First of all, of course, this was their signature policy um, in the election campaign. So it was important for them to pass it on that basis. But it does mean that although the Senate is going to be a little easier than it was in the last term of government to negotiate with because there's fewer crossbenchers, it's still going to require some horse trading. You've seen that already with uh, both Central Alliance and Jackie Lambie. But in more general terms, I think also that voters are pretty sick of the idea of a stalemate in Canberra. And so the idea of being able to get the full tax package through is more important uh, even than just the actual notion of the tax package and what it means in policy terms. And is that the right priority, though? There's been a lot made of the government's mandate, the government's right to get this through. Labor's been really heavily criticised for the notion that would stand in the way of this and has been criticised by its own, some within its own ranks of acting like a, a government in exile. But is there a job for the opposition to point out what you know, many would say is an obvious point here, the economic responsibility of locking in the third stage of this, $95 billion it's worth, um, not to come into five years' time at the time when the Reserve Bank Governor is, you know, talking about the economy being in the doldrums, there's headwinds on our way, you know, Labor's saying let's bring the second stage in now, kickstart the economy. Is the criticism of Labor's position here, do you think it's warranted? Well, actually, yes, I largely do. And the reason is Labor has shown absolutely no problem with with locking in spending commitments Mm. over 10 years. I mean, that doesn't seem to be an issue, whereas somehow the tax cuts are very different. You can argue that also what what the tax package does is just return bracket creep that was, you know, occurring before. I mean, the fact is Australia's income system is very progressive. It will remain very progressive. And that higher income threshold um, hasn't been moved for 10 years or so. And I think you saw during the election campaign with Labor's difficulties in terms of defending its attitude towards redistribution as opposed to aspiration, which the government played off very well. That creates problems for Labor trying to reset itself post-election and saying it's heard the message. What about the notion of bringing the second tranche forward 
forward because, as the Reserve Bank Governor says, we need stimulus now. Is there any merit in that and has that been lost in the sort of wings because Labor's lost the overall argument? Well, I think it has been lost in the wings, partly because Labor's been so focused on the on the third element and that kind of negativity, in a sense, defined them. You could certainly argue there's a value in bringing it forward, but as we know, what was the government also campaigned on a budget surplus and uh, is very keen to deliver that. And that's part of, the, I think, the Morrison message, we'll do what we say uh, and, and you can trust us. So I think this may change. I don't think there's any doubt that if the economy shows you know, further weakening signs that you'll see something happening from the government, whether it's on tax or something else. But at the moment, I think they are sticking to their line. We are doing what we said we'd do. So what's Labor trying to do here, though? Obviously, they're trying to deal with internal issues and some division, you know, in the wake of an election loss about their economic message and about their taxation policy. All of that's going on, Jennifer. But are they also trying to have an answer for if the economy does tank, saying, look, we tried to do this, you know, we were trying to be smart economic managers. Is that what they're maybe trying to do here, well, but have I, an answer for later down the track? They're trying to have, I guess, an answer for later down the track in, in case the economy does tank. But really, you know, I, I don't think that that's a particularly effective way to do it. And uh, you're going to have to say at that stage, for example, tax cuts might be a good idea because you'd be wanting to stimulate the economy. So, I mean, what do they say then? I, I, I don't get this message really at all. Do you think, though, there could be an element here of fortunate timing for the government, that if the government was, you know, two-thirds through its term arguing for this $95 billion third-stage tax cut at a time when the economy was really in trouble, that it would have a harder time arguing it because it would have a harder time explaining where the funding for health services, school services is coming from? Well, I think that's right. I think the timing, that's why it is the government's been determined not to split this. I mean, clearly um, the, the time to get the full package through is right now and it would become harder as the term goes on. So the other issue, of course, for Labor, and we're recording this on a Thursday morning, but they've got a bit of a tricky situation now. It's clearly going to pass. Government's got the numbers. They've got to have an answer at some point on the third tranche. Will they repeal it? What will they do? This is going to be a vexed issue for them. Yeah, I think it's going to continue to be uh, a vexed issue. I don't think it will be quite as vexed as if it hadn't gone through uh, because then the Labor Party would definitely be under constant assault from the government. They can use it as a, we told you so, and we'd have different priorities. Uh, so it's going to be tricky. I, I guess the question is whether they'll say go to the next election saying they'd repeal it. But frankly, you know, three years hence, I, I don't think... You know, you can't forget five years hence. You can't even predict three years hence. Jennifer, another issue this week and in the Senate, um, the Senate crossbench determined to make this an issue, is the future employment of former ministers Christopher Pine and Julie Bishop. Now, you broke the story that Julie Bishop has her first private sector appointments, a board appointment to the international development group Palladium. Before you explain to us what that means, let's hear Penny Wong's reckoning that, that this is a test for Scott Morrison's leadership. This ultimately shouldn't have to be dealt with by the parliament. It should be dealt with by the prime minister of the day. The ministerial standards are enforced by the prime minister. So this is a test of Scott Morrison and what sort of man he is. So Penny Wong says these jobs that uh, Julie Bishop taking up and Christopher Pine taking up are in clear breach of the Ministerial Code of Conduct for how ministers can take positions after they're um, no longer in the parliament. What do you think about the Julie Bishop position in particular, this group Palladium? Can you tell us a bit about them and whether you think 
uh, Labor has is onto anything here. Well, I think that the case of Christopher Pine and Julie Bishop, um, the cases are very, very different. It suited Labor and Penny Wong to try and, and, and mix them together, kind of to add more heft mm. uh, to, uh, I think, to the attack on Christopher Pine. But as Penny Wong would understand very well, the Palladium issue, uh, it's a its a development agency. It, it started, you know, years ago in Australia, but has since grown into a, an international business where they provide uh, and assist with implementation of lots of development aid from various governments uh, as well as philanthropists and, and sovereign wealth funds. Julie's doing it for what she calls a modest stipend, I'm not, not sure, So, but I don't. it's certainly not a you know huge money-making exercise. She also points out, and I think this is totally correct, that the foreign aid budget was handled at arm's length from the foreign minister and the foreign minister's office. So I just think they're completely different, whereas I think Christopher Pine, he looks tawdry and I think it's created all sorts of problems for EY. I've got to say, that I hate this saying, but I use it all the time, so it does kind of fail the pub test, doesn't it? It certainly does fail the pub test, and I think Christopher Pine just looks, I think, greedy and opportunistic. But more importantly, the other the other issue, of course, is for EY. I mean, didn't they understand politics? They, they've made a fortune out of uh, governments, as, as all the kind of the big firms have done, the big former big accounting firms have done, greatly expanding constantly all the time off the back of a lot of government work. And the idea that this would not create uh, difficulties in, in an area in defence, which is, you know, clearly huge, huge dollars involved. I mean, what else were they getting Christopher Pine for, for heaven's sake? I suppose there is there is an obvious point to make in his defence, which is all this spending on defence, which he announced, fair cop, is on the public record. We all know where it's going. It's going to submarines and merchant vessels and, and all sorts of things, a lot of it in his home state of South Australia. But it's all on the public record. It's not as if they need secret ministerial information to know what's coming up because it's all out there. What they're getting from him is a knowledge of how the system works and who the players are. Well, exactly. But that is still, you know, an issue um, because basically they're buying his contacts and access and information. And, of course, this is always a grey area. It's always going to happen to some extent and you can say, oh, well, it's... Any cabinet minister to some degree, really. Yeah, well, any cabinet to some degree, yeah. But, but to jump straight into it without any kind of grace period, I think, as, as Patricia says, it just fails the pub test. Let's move to something else, which is so much, so much to talk about. Uh, According to our leaders, the leadership coup that unseated Malcolm Turnbull is ancient history. I'm not quite sure if that fits the description of the ancient history I I know of, but it hasn't stopped Nikki Sava. Her new book, Plots and Prayers, reopens those wounds with a complete real history of those very chaotic days. Do you think these insights... Insights about Matthias Corman, Christian Porter, some key players who are still in the government hurts the Morrison government, Jennifer? I don't think that, that you know, lots of the voters in marginal seats that were so uh, important to Scott Morrison's win uh, will be rushing out to buy it. But plenty of other people will. And in fact, uh, our household just got a copy yesterday. Look, it does hurt the government to some extent, um, and it, you know, just all the personal frictions that remain there. But I think that this is greatly helped by the fact that, you know, Morrison won what was, you know, widely considered to be a pretty unwinnable election and his authority is paramount. And he has managed to bring all of those kind of warring personalities back in into a kind of a, a loose, loose tent. I mean, 
who knows how long this will hold. I mean, as yeah. we know in politics, there's always uh, things that threaten to break out and everything. But in, in terms of his personal authority and right now and his willingness to bring in ministers from a whole range of you know sides and backgrounds and things, I, I think the, the damage will be very limited. There's no doubt he's got you know huge personal authority after that win, no doubt about it at all. But whether he will succeed in healing the rifts in that party room that was so destructive for you know, six years. That's the question, I suppose. Yes, people went quiet. They behaved during the election campaign and the rifts were really buried down. But is, are these books going to, you know, resuscitate them? Are they still on display? How will he manage George Christensen? All of these questions. Or is that just all the past now? Does it slip away as the former prime ministers have slipped away? Well, I don't think it slips away. I, I do. Um, but I, I think, for example, it helps uh, Morrison that um, Abbott is not uh, in the parliament anymore. And he has made a, you know, a virtue of his ability to, to work. The fact that he wasn't particularly liked by either side in some ways is, is going to benefit him. He is not a kind of captive at this stage of anyone. And I think that makes a difference. And at the same time, of course, you had Bill Shorten and, and, and Labor spent years kind of selling their unity. And and as a result, not having kind of hard discussions and, and many hard choices. And mm. guess what happened there? That's of course, in the history books or perhaps not in the contemporary history books. Let's go to question time now because we're going to do something a little different and Jennifer's going to help us answer this question. Hooray for that. That's very exciting because, you know, I can't answer it. So we just basically make Jennifer do it. Now, Graham has written in and he asks this. I cannot fathom why the pressure is on Labor to pass the government's tax cut bill. As I understand it, the opposition's job is to oppose, with or without a good reason. The government's job is to get their bills through. There seems to be a total acceptance of the Liberals' tactics to shame Labor into passing a bill that they never agreed with. Why is this tactic not called out for the obvious wedge that it is and instead ask the government how it plans to pass its own bill? When I recall the 100% negative campaign that Tony Abbott ran in opposition, he seemed to get only admiration for his tactics. I don't recall any media taking him to task or suggesting that it would have a negative impact at the next election. I actually think he was taken to task, but... Yeah, come on, Graham. (laughs) But anyway, He was hammered for being the most negative... Uh, opposition was, leader of all time, wasn't he? That's he was right, and he, and he was incredibly uh, unpopular as a result. So I, I, I do think both sides have this issue. And but this this kind of goes to the broader point of whether people recognise mandates, you know, and and what is a mandate anyway, I guess. But I think the idea of having a mandate recognised has become much more elusive in the last few years. But I do think that's part of the problem uh, in terms of people's opinion of politics and politicians. They do actually want to have things done, and they much prefer it. When, when oppositions work with governments. Obviously, that's kind of unrealistic. It won't always happen. But in some cases, oppositions and governments do work together. Oh, that's right. And as I said before, I think to some extent, Labor as the opposition and their opposition position here is really a victim of timing because it's just so close to this election and the wash of that election victory that the mandate argument is still really quite powerful. And it was the one big policy that took the election. Yeah. So we'll see what happens in the next three years uh, in terms of other policies. That's right. But on, just on that, I did want to say one thing to you, Graeme. Actually, I've heard this critique, too much focus on Labor and what they'll do. Absolutely. When you speak to Labor people, as Fran and I do, you, you do ask those questions. 
But if you listen to the interviews with government ministers too, I mean, my consistent question to them is always, what are you going to do to get this bill through? They are the government. And look, they found a pathway. They found Jackie Lambie. They found Central Alliance. So I suppose they've got an answer there on what they were prepared to do uh, to try and get this through. (laughs) And and don't forget there were, you know, there have been incredible divisions in Labor on this as well. Lots of divisions. But we weren't divided. We've talked and we've had a great time. Jennifer, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. On that note, goodbye from us this week. Tune in to RN Drive and RN Breakfast if you start missing us too much, 6am or 6pm, of course. And we want your questions. We love question time. We love hearing from you. Record them if you like. Tweet them to us. Email them to us. Thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. Tell a friend. Subscribe. Easy to do. In fact, do it right now. See you, friend. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.